Hello and welcome to the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. I'm Jack Green, Head of Performance here at Champion Health. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Stephanie Fitzgerald. Stephanie is a clinical psychologist and is the mental health lead at Rolls-Royce. Stephanie is a leading light in the wellbeing sector and has some amazing knowledge to share with us. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well here. I'm very warm at the moment, which is strange for Yorkshire. Um, But yeah, we've got to have one day at least every year. Um, Thank you for taking the time out today to speak with myself and Jack about workplace health and well-being. You've obviously got a lot of experience in the field as a, a clinical psychologist, and we'd love to learn more about the work that you've done with Rolls-Royce and other organisations. Now, obviously, Rolls-Royce are a global organisation operating in loads of different countries. How do you bring together a cohesive well-being strategy when people all have different wants and needs? It's a great question, Harry. Thank you. So certainly from my perspective, um, it's about going deeper than surface level. So I think people, when they think of a well-being strategy, sometimes they think, you know, yoga on the lawn, lettuce in the canteen. It's all very sort of fluffy. And actually, when you're delivering a global strategy, you have to start with real basics like medical legal issues. So what are the legal implications of asking people to disclose a mental health issue, for example, in the workplace? That drastically varies country to country. Things that make you a good, kind, caring manager in the UK can land you in court in the US. So you have to be so mindful of the cultures you're working in, the people you're working with. Um, But also the key thing for me is not making assumptions and asking what is needed country to country, culture to culture. Um, Because, again, whatever's driving the mental health agenda in the UK may not be happening uh, elsewhere. And so trying to have a UK-centred approach that you roll out may not be your best strategy. I'd love to hear more around some of the challenges maybe, but for some of the nuances that you find in, in say, APAC, Americas, the rest of, of Europe, be great to, to hear some of those challenges. Yeah, definitely. So for me, some of the biggest challenges are definitely around disclosure, what you can and can't ask an employee um, and what standard protocols, so what people are used to talking about in work, what people are comfortable talking about in work, and what's never mentioned in work. And those tend to be the the real variety. So even if technically, legally, you're allowed to ask, that doesn't mean someone's going to be comfortable or they may think you've got a hidden agenda. And I think you really see that in organisations where there's a reorganisation happening or a restructuring happening. If you suddenly start asking people about your well-being, uh, they may think, well, why are you asking me about that? Do you not think I'm coping? Do you think I'm you know, am I demonstrating some sort of overt stress that you're worried about? Whereas actually, you may think, kind, caring manager, we're going through a reorg, is everyone okay? So I think those really clear communications are really key. And again, understanding um, what am I allowed to ask someone? What's culturally acceptable to talk about? And what's the, what are maybe my biggest blockers to talking about, particularly mental health, but well-being more broadly in the workplace? And you mentioned previously that, that well-being can be seen as fluffery and flowery by, by some people. Um, and you've obviously got a, a majority male workforce as well. Um, and that increases the risk of people perceiving certain elements of well-being as fluffery and flowery. How do you overcome that barrier to be able to make it inclusive and engaging for people um, when it comes to well-being? 
I'm so happy you asked that question. Um, so I will say there is a real myth uh, that men don't want to talk about mental health. Um, and that ranges from, so my background, uh, I've done a lot of work with military trauma. Um, and, you know, when you think of the sort of stereotypical uh, perceived, uh, you know, male in the military, and I said, oh, well, actually, you know, what I do is I work with military personnel and veterans who've, you know, experienced traumatic events. There's this sort of, oh, well, you know, they must be silent conversations or I bet they don't disclose much. And what you'll find is the more you tell men that men don't want to talk about mental health, the less they'll talk about it because they believe you. So if you walk into an all-male organisation and say, men don't want to talk about mental health, then they'll turn around and say, somehow I'm not being given permission. I bowl in absolutely with the attitude of, we all have health, we all have mental health, let's talk about it like we talk about the weather, and guess what? People start talking about it. So I think... For me, it's a myth. I would say my clinical caseload, certainly at points, has been 100% male. So, uh, you know, for me, it's a myth. I've had big, burly construction workers. I've worked on the railway. I've worked in atomic weapons. I've worked in all kinds of male-dominated, macho industries, if I could call them that. And uh, absolutely, it is a myth. Men are very happy to talk about their mental health. They just need the safe space and permission to do so. I absolutely love that. Um... As much as I feel like I knew that naturally, I don't think I've ever heard anyone really say it and, and kind of reaffirm that. So thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> but what I'm quite interested in as a clinical psychologist working in workplace wellbeing, what are the lessons that you've kind of transferred over and, and managed to apply within the workplace? That's a really interesting question. I think for me, I'm very keen that everything I do is evidence-based. Uh, so as a practitioner, as a clinician, I'm an evidence-based uh, clinician. So everything that I put into place has to have a scientific backing. Um, and for me, it's really important. It's probably more important that happens in the corporate world because you're answerable to shareholders and stakeholders and, you know, boards and they want data and measurements. And so go, being able to go in with something that's evidence-based is huge. Um, and I think in terms of transferable skills, I got into workplace well-being because I used to work for the NHS and I saw huge changes that came in with budget cuts and wards closing and kind of the pressures that everyday NHS staff who are just our heroes um, have to deal with. And I really noticed an impact, not just on staff, but on patient care. And I had a theory, what if we looked after our doctors and nurses, would our patients go home quicker? Would they would they be discharged from hospital? Would they get better quicker? Um, and I won't bore you with all my research, but spoiler alert, yes, if your doctors and nurses are happier <laughs> and healthier, you get out of hospital more quickly. Um, and so really transferring that into every industry and being able to say to them, health and well-being is not something you tack on to the end as a nice to have. It is the fuel for your engine. So put your employee health and well-being first. That's how you will deliver everything that you want to deliver. That's how you'll hit your you know, production targets. That's how you'll um, be a productive workforce who are um, engaged and happy and healthy and safe and they're delivering everything you need them to deliver. It's not kind of, you know, burn them out and then help them recover. It's support them at this, you know, at the beginning point and then they can deliver. I, I'm grinning from ear to ear for all the listeners that are listening at the moment. This is just amazing stuff. So, and I love the fueling your engine, especially at Rolls Royce as well. That just couldn't <laughs> be more fitting. 
I guess you mentioned board level um, and getting senior stakeholders bought in. That's something that we've found from conversations we have with people that are hugely bought into wellbeing. Sometimes board members aren't. And how would you go about advising those people to be able to support them in getting the board members bought into wellbeing to see that as something that's fundamental and not just, as you say, an add-on? So for me, I alter the language I use with everyone I speak to. If I'm speaking to a finance, you know, a, a CFO or, or a head of finance, I speak about the numbers and the cost savings and the productivity and the output. If I'm speaking to HR, I'll talk about their Gallup scores and engagement scores. If I'm speaking to the CEO, it's a much broader picture, but also this is how this will make you look good. You know, let's be honest. So you need to be able to adapt. And for me, you need to have that depth of understanding of your strategy and you need to believe it. You need to absolutely fundamentally believe that you can change the company for the better and then be prepared to have that conversation at every level. Because if you just have your well-being head on, if I just have my psychologist head on and I walked in and spoke to the CFO and he said, how much can you save me? And I was like, well, you know, this is the cognitive change that you're going to see in your employees. He'd be like, OK. <laughs> like, <laughs> how much can you save me? Exactly. There's no interest there, you know. And, and even if they personally find it interesting, they then have to go to shareholders, board members, etc. and say, you know, Stephanie's had an idea again. So, um, you know, you have to be prepared to adapt your language to everyone that you're going to speak to. Oh, I love it. Um, I'm, I'm grinning like Harry as well. So I find we're finding a trend now with these podcasts that maybe we needed more than 12 minutes, but we'll, uh, we'll get what we can in that time. I'm really interested. I think it's something we haven't covered with a lot of our guests so far. As a well-being lead, how do you look after your own well-being when you're prioritising so many other people? I think that's something that people will be listening and be really keen to hear some of the techniques you might use for yourself. Do you know, it's, it's a work in progress. So even though I've worked in mental health for, not to age myself, but for nearly two decades, uh, I've worked as a health and wellbeing consultant for nearly a decade uh, of that time, I it is, it's an ever-developing um, sort of cause that I, that I work on. I have really good habits, and I'm a big believer in micro-habits. So I wouldn't say I do anything drastic, Um but I have day-to-day -day good practices. So I um, start my day with positive affirmations. I journal. I exercise. So the gym is definitely my stress buster. Um, and I take good care of myself. But I also hold a realistic standpoint about my job. Um, and what I mean by that is I think people think working in well-being is going to be lush. You know, oh, it's just going to be so amazing and it's all going to be lovely and I'm going to be so zen. And the reality is... No one comes to the head of well-being because everything's good. No one comes to the mental health lead because everything's awesome, right? So people come and find me. And it's a weird job because it means from day one, when you join a company, you only hear the bad. So your perception of that company is so skewed because you only hear the bad. So even if you only speak to 10 people that week... And let's say they're the only 10 unhappy people in your whole company, in your head, that's all you've heard, are these problems and everyone being really unhappy. And so you have to kind of balance that out. Uh, so, for example, I read a lot of, I subscribe to two positive news channels. Uh, I read a lot of positive information. I try and stay very sunny. I have sources of kind of sunshine and things that kind of pick me up. Um, 
I, I stay clear of social media <laughs> a lot of the time, you know, anything that I kind of perceive to be a bit toxic or unhelpful. So I think you absolutely have to recognize, you know, first and foremost, you can't pour from an empty cup. So you have to look after yourself because all these people are relying on you to be okay. That's absolutely fascinating. As Jack says, um, all of these podcasts, I could just talk for hours, um, but unfortunately we've not got that time. So Stephanie, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast series. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Stephanie for joining us on the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. I'm sure you all really enjoyed that. And if you'd like to find out more about Stephanie, then you can find her on Twitter at Steph Fitzrights and on Instagram at workplace underscore wellbeing. 